with Romans chapter 12, verses 1 through 13. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. For by the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you, not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think with sober judgment, each according to the measure of faith that God has assigned. For as in one body we have many members, and the members do not all have the same function, so we, though many, are one body in Christ, and individually members one of another." Having gifts that differ according to the grace given to us, let us use them. If prophecy, in proportion to our faith. If service, in our serving. The one who teaches, in his teaching. The one who exhorts, in his exhortation. The one who contributes, in generosity. The one who leads, with zeal. The one who does acts of mercy, with cheerfulness. Let love be genuine. Abhor what is evil. Hold fast to what is good. Love one another with brotherly affection. Outdo one another in showing honor. Do not be slothful in zeal. Be fervent in spirit. Serve the Lord. Rejoice in hope. Be patient in tribulation. Be constant in prayer. Contribute to the needs of the saints and seek to show hospitality. The May issue of the magazine The Atlantic has an article written by Stephen March titled, Is Facebook Making Us Lonely? You know, on Facebook, we can interact with people without the embarrassment of or awkwardness of uh, face-to-face contact. He, uh, he begins the article with the story of Yvette Vickers. She was a former playboy playmate and a B-movie actress. She was found dead in her home last August at the age of 83. When she was found, she was dead for almost a year before anyone found her. Apparently, she didn't have any friends. No one missed her when she died. The only friends she had were some former fans that she apparently corresponded with, but they lived far away. She had no children, no church, no web of social relationships. How utterly sad. She spent the last years of her life without any meaningful relationships. In in 1950... 10% of American households were occupied by one person. And today, that's 27%. Of course, one can live alone without being lonely. And you can live with a lot of people and be lonely. Still, 
The more people who live alone, the more likely that someone will be lonely. According to one study out there, 35% of adults over 45 years of age, about one-third, are chronically lonely. I suppose one reason there's so many psychologists and therapists is people need someone to talk to. People need someone to unburden their soul and just talk about what's happening in their lives. And for many people in our culture, there's no one that they feel that they can truly open up to. So that at least they can talk to their psychologist or their therapist. In the last 70 years, we have three times the number of clinical psychologists around six times the number of clinical social workers, and a hundred times more marriage and family therapists. Uh, March points out that the American ideals of self-reliance and, and independence, those are, those are great American ideals, aren't they? But they can lead to loneliness. There's always been an impulse in our culture to get away from the crowd, <clears throat> to do your own thing. So there's a correlation in American society between, between loneliness and, and certain trends in our society. Sub, suburban sprawl, entertaining ourselves alone, the TV and the computer, the disintegration of the traditional family, and the decline of social organizations. That, that's remarkable in and of itself, isn't it? There's been a remarkable decline of secular social organizations in our culture. March writes, I don't, I, don't, I don't think March is a Christian as far as I can tell, but I, he writes insightfully, and I think rightly, we are lonely because we want to be lonely. We have made ourselves lonely. He thinks of his own life at the grocery store. How about you? He says, when I go to the grocery store, I could go to the person or I could go to the machine. He says, I always choose the machine. He says, I'm in a hurry. Uh, it, it, it takes time to go talk to a person. I can just get it done faster going to the machine. So he uses the machine. That's easier. It's faster. It's more efficient. It's impersonal too. Well, the fundamental answer to loneliness is the gospel of Jesus Christ. We discover in the gospel that Jesus Christ God the Father loves us, even though we're sinners. We don't have to hide from him in shame. There's no secret in our lives that he doesn't know about, and he still loves us. We can confess our sins and our faults freely and openly to him, asking him to forgive us of our sins and to grant us life since Jesus died to give us life. And when we turn to Christ for forgiveness... We become part of a new family. We don't only have Jesus Christ as our Savior and God as our Father and the Holy Spirit indwelling us, but we're also part of a family. We become members of one another. We're a family of forgiven failures. We're a family of forgiven sinners. So if you're a visitor among us today, we're failures. <laughs> We're failures in here, but we're forgiven failures, forgiven sinners. And in the text before us, we have some family instructions today. But these commands 
come from the gospel of grace. They come from Romans 1 through 11, what God has done for us in Jesus Christ. They're a response to what God has done for us in Jesus Christ. They're a response to the mercies of God, as Eric read in verse 1 of Romans chapter 12. So I'm just going to lift out six truths. We'll talk about them quickly. Look at six different truths here. We could spend much more time on all these, of course. But the first truth I see here is true love. True love is genuine love. It's the the title of my sermon, Real Love. Love must not be hypocritical or fake. Paul says, let love be genuine. It must be real. Proverbs warns us against flattery. What What is flattery? Flattery is when we say nice things to a person or compliment a person, but we really don't mean it. We, we, we say it actually to advance ourselves or to hide our hearts. It's the reason we say these nice things. We, we may butter someone up face to face, right? That's flattery, but stab them behind the back when they're not there. That's, that's flattery and deception, isn't it? We, we can say to someone with lots of emotion and charm, how are you? so that it looks as if we're full of love when actually we're putting on a show. So that Paul exhorts us to have real, genuine, true, authentic love, love in word and deed. So, you know, we could talk about this the whole time, couldn't we? What what is real love? There's so much to say, but just a couple of examples. True love means giving our time to other people. True love shows itself practically in what we do with our Time. All of us are limited, right? None of us can do everything. None of us can meet all the needs of others. But all of us are called upon to give love, that is, time, to others. To invest in others takes time. That's what it means to love. It means being open. Sometimes we can't change our schedule. But it means being open to changing our schedules to meet the needs of others. Second example. One of the most loving things we can do is to really listen to others when they pour out their hearts. How easy it is to be distracted when people are unburdening their hearts to us and not to really talk to them. Diane tells a story of a friend she was talking to, a really good friend of ours, actually, wonderful guy. She sensed in the conversation that he wasn't listening to her. So then she just started saying ridiculous things to see if he would respond. So she said things, and then he shot and killed her. (laughs) Then he went and murdered 20 other people, and he was obviously not listening because he just goes, "Uh uh-huh, uh-huh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, we got a big laugh out of that. And we laugh with him about it. He was distracted at the moment, and she could just say anything, and she could discern he wasn't listening. I laughed about it. But Diane doesn't feel loved by me when I don't listen to her well. That's part of what it means to love our wives. She doesn't like it when we talk, and when we're talking, I'm looking at my computer. I'm not really listening to her. I'm attending to something else. She doesn't feel loved When I do that, even if we disagree on something, she feels loved if I listen to her well 
and respond to her well in listening. True love is real love. It's authentic love, isn't it? It's not hypocritical. Second, true love is holy love. We read in verse 9 that we must abhor or hate what is evil and hold fast or cling to what is good. So love, love must not be confused with sentimentality and warm feelings. Love isn't only the pat on the back and the encouraging word. It is that, isn't it? It's that many times, but it's not only that. Love is holy. Love doesn't tolerate evil. When I became a teenager, a long time ago now, but parents in my hometown, I, I saw how they responded, it was the 60s, as their children began to indulge in sexual sin and in drugs. By and large, by and large, the parents accepted it. They loved their children. They may not have liked it, but they accepted it. They didn't want to criticize their children. And they didn't want anybody else criticizing them either. And the parents congratulated themselves on being loving, accepting, caring, and tolerant. But that's not love, is it? Love that contradicts holiness is not love. True love is holy love. Holy love celebrates goodness and shuns evil. Holy love is courageous. Holy love is bold. Dietrich Bonhoeffer exercised holy love when Hitler came into power in the 1930s and he gave an address on the radio, not just in a church, he gave an address on the radio about the dangers of having a false leader instead of God. That's bold, isn't it? That's courageous. That's holy love. Even though the German culture was out of step with what Bonhoeffer was saying, holy love does not give way to rage or uncontrolled fury. It treats every person with respect, even the persons we disagree with. I thought Tony Dungy recently was a good example of holy love because he said... President Obama's stance on homosexual marriage is wrong. He said it respectfully, said it nicely, but he stood out, didn't he? And said, he's the former coach of the Indianapolis Colts, if you don't know who that is. He said, that is not right. That's holy love. So many people in our culture believe that endorsing the sexual wishes of others is love. And so they're prone to say, this is something we face, isn't it? They're prone to say that we hate instead of we love. But they say this. We can understand them. We were lost once ourselves. They say this because they don't understand holy love. They don't understand what true compassion is. So we can be compassionate to them while standing against what they're saying. We can disagree with them, with love, but with firmness at the same time. Because we know that their version of love is actually contributing to the ruin of other people's. It's not, uh, it's not helping them. Holy love might mean 
you have to fire somebody who's not doing a good job. Or it might mean flunking a student who's not doing well in school. Or it might mean disciplining a church member who's fallen away from the Lord and doing His commandments. Why is it so hard to understand this kind of love? Because our culture doesn't understand the holiness of God. Most people in our culture cannot grasp why God would send anyone to hell. Why not? They don't understand holy love. They don't understand holiness. God, the scriptures say, is a consuming fire. He blazes with holiness. And he cannot and will not tolerate evil. But we tend to think, our culture tends to think, sin is trivial, so they can't understand why Jesus had to die on the cross and face the wrath of God for sinners to be forgiven. Well, they don't understand holy love. Third, true love is family love. I like the Holman Christian Standard Bible's translation of the first part of verse 10. I think it captures... Uh, the meaning of the verse beautifully. Show family affection to one another with brotherly love. You know, I, one of the striking things about the New Testament, you're all aware of this, who've been reading the Bible regularly, is that fellow believers are called brothers and sisters. In Romans through Revelation, the word brothers appears 133 times. That's a lot of times. But we, we often take it for granted when we read Scripture, don't we? We, can, we kind of, I do at least, you kind of fly past it, the word brothers. But it's significant, isn't it? I, I, many of you, maybe most of you, remember when Ryan Townsend was here. I, always, I liked it when Ryan would come up and say, Hello, beloved brethren. Right? He would call us brothers. We're family. When we read the New Testament, we discover that believers didn't call each other friend. They could have said that. They didn't call each other fellow citizens or fellow church member. But what did they call each other? Brother and sister. You know, that's intentional, wasn't it? Brother and sister. The church is a family. We are brothers and sisters if you're believers in Jesus Christ. We are a family together. We belong to one another. And Paul encourages us, show family affection to one another. And actually the word he uses here is Philadelphia. You all know that word, don't you? From our city of brotherly love, which isn't always a city of brotherly love, but what a great name that is. Many people in our society view church like a club where dues are fulfilled. They think of attending church, of fulfilling their duty by being present every Sunday. And that's a good thing, isn't it? I don't want to put down that. Attending church regularly is, a, is important. But what, what they often miss out on is that being member of a church is also being member of a family. It's more than attending, right? You're joining a family. You're joining brothers and sisters. It signals when you join a church, when you join Clifton, your commitment to Jesus Christ and to one another. These are my brothers and sisters, you're saying, when you join Clifton or another church. 
Now, I, I, honestly, I think Clifton shows this kind of practical family love in so many ways. I mean, at VBS, it was remarkable, right? And bringing meals to one another and visiting and caring for the sick and getting together with one another and inviting one another over. I mean, it's, it's, it's amazing. But we can always grow. We can still grow in our love for one another. And maybe, maybe some of you here aren't plugged into that. You know, you're on the outside a little bit in terms of being involved. Are you just someone who comes to eat at the family table once a week, Sunday morning? But you don't support other family members in any significant way besides just being here on Sunday morning? Have you thought about what it means to be a member of the family? Or is church just somewhere you go on Sunday? I mean, again, I just want to say... I love, I love Clifton's commitment to love one another. I mean, it's such an encouragement to me and to Diane to see how we stimulate one another to love and good deeds. So it's remarkable, I think, what the Lord is doing here. Let's look at the last part of verse 10. I think the family character of the church is reflected in what that verse says. I actually think here... The NIV captures best the meaning. And the NIV renders it, Honor one another above yourselves. What it means to be a family is to give precedence and honor to others. How do we do that? We're we're spring-loaded to want to glorify and honor ourselves. Here's something that's just helped me with this command. How can we be more like this? Pray, pray for others to be honored and blessed more than you. How about that? Do you struggle with envy and jealousy towards others? Pray that they'll be honored more than you're honored. Pray that God would bless them and honor them and make them flourish and that great things would happen to them. And pray that your heart would be glad when that happens. And if you say, I do pray that and I still don't feel that way, well, then keep praying, right? Keep praying. Keep praying as long as you struggle with that. And if that's your whole life, then pray your whole life for that. Just pray that others would be honored and that God would use them and that you would be happy with that. Because you long to see God's name honored. What a practical and convicting word. Fourth, we must hurry on. True love is fervent love. True love is fervent love. Verse 11. Do not be slothful in zeal, but fervent in spirit. Serve the Lord. As life goes on, we can feel beaten down. That's why we're exhorted over and over again, to finish the race strong and not to serve half-heartedly. If you've been a Christian for a while, maybe you've lost that zeal and that joy you had at the beginning. Maybe sufferings and trials have tamped that down. Maybe you feel you've given yourself to the Lord and instead of uh, thriving, you've, you've suffered significantly. Perhaps you're just weary from suffering physical afflictions. I mean, uh, physical pain zaps us of strength. And, and the Lord knows this, doesn't he? He doesn't expect us 
to be full of physical energy when we're not well. But the command still applies to us, doesn't it? Still, it says we cannot be full of physical energy, but we can be full, even when we're weak physically, of spiritual energy. We can still have zeal for the Lord. I think that was definitely true of Chip Stan when he was suffering. Not a lot of physical energy, but full of spiritual energy to the end. Perhaps you've given yourself to other people and you've been critiqued by them instead of commended by them. I've talked to so many people in ministry who've given and given and given of themselves to others. And, and they get back ne- negative. And that's, that's tiring, isn't it? And that's exhausting. And that's enervating. And that's discouraging. But God knows, this is why he gives us this command, he knows our zeal and our joy can flag. He knows our frame. He knows, he knows that we're dust. He, he, he knows we're weak. He knows we need to be nourished afresh by the gospel. And so he gives us commands like this. Renew your zeal. Renew your fervency for him. He says be fervent in spirit. I agree with those who say that's the human spirit and the Holy Spirit. It's not an either or. Be fervent in spirit through the Holy Spirit, in the Holy Spirit. So I don't think he's simply saying be fervent in your human spirit. Yes, he is saying that, but be fervent in your human spirit by the Holy Spirit. So this is not a self-generated fervency, is it? This is the Spirit's work in our lives. Are you growing lax in the things of the Lord? Are your hands drooping? Are your knees buckling? Pray something like this. Come, Holy Spirit, refresh and renew my heart. Come, Spirit of life, and revive me again. O Lord, you know me. You know that I am dust and ashes. You know I have no strength on my own. Please revive my love and fervency for you and for the gospel. True love is fervent love. It is a fervency, a zeal for the things of God. It doesn't live for the things of this world. It lives for the things of God. And there's a zeal in it, isn't there? There's a power in that. We get that from the Holy Spirit. Fifth, true love is persevering love. That's verse 12. Rejoice in hope. Be patient in tribulation. Be constant in prayer. Again, we don't have time to look at all these individually. In detail. But, but the one thing that holds these through three admonitions together is perseverance. We're persevering if we keep hoping for what's promised. And patience means we keep enduring in the pressures and the tribulations of life. And perseverance is also evident when we're constant in prayer. When I read this verse, I thought of a speech that Winston Churchill gave a very famous speech during the middle of World War II. You know, he was the prime minister then. This was October 29, 1941, so that was pretty early on in the war still. He gave a speech at Harrow School, and I think part of what he said to the students today applies to us. He said to the students, he said, never give in. Never give in. 
Never, 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 never. In nothing great or small, large or petty, never give in. Never yield to force. Never yield to the apparently overwhelming might of the enemy. I think that's a good word for us. I think it fits with what this verse is saying. Don't give in to despair. Rejoice in hope. Be patient in your troubles. Keep praying. Keep praying that God's kingdom will come. I mean, we live in difficult days. Anybody who reads what's happening in our society knows we're not having a great revival right now in our culture. We're battling against the culture. Things are going the other way, mainly. But that's what was happening in England as well. We live in days where the forces of evil are strong. And, and I like what Churchill said in the very same speech. He went on and said some other things to the students. And here's what he said to them. He, he said, these are not dark days. Well, they were dark days, but you, you will hear what he says. These are not dark days. These are great days. The greatest days our country has ever lived. And we must all thank God that we have been allowed, each of us according to our stations, to play a part in making these days memorable in the history of our race. That's a great word, isn't it? These are great days. God, God made us, God made you to be alive in this time. And he calls upon us to be involved and active and to be hopeful and to be confident and to be optimistic because our God reigns. Our God is sovereign. We rejoice in hope. All our enemies will be defeated. All our afflictions are going to pass away. We will win. That doesn't mean there's not a great battle on. There's a great battle. But we're to be optimistic and hopeful. We're to be constant in prayer. Because we don't win that victory by ourselves, do we? We conquer by depending upon God. We pray because we're inadequate in ourselves. We pray because our deliverance only comes from God himself. So we need his strength, don't we, to rejoice in hope and be patient in afflictions. Sixth and lastly, true love is practical love. Verse 13. Love love is concrete and specific in the way it works out. It's not just a theory or a nice-sounding word. We've already seen that in this text. It meets the needs of others. So Paul says, contribute to the needs of the saints and seek to show hospitality. I think when he says contribute to the needs of the saints, he's thinking of financially helping other people. Contribute to what they need materially. Now, now this, this is a tricky matter. I just want to say a couple things about this. On one, on one hand, it's very clear. But, but the New Testament emphasizes something else as well, and I think it's good for our body to consider this for a moment. And that is that we should work hard and not rely on others. 1 Thessalonians 4, 11 and 12. Make it your ambition to lead a quiet life. You should mind your own business and work with your hands, just as we told you, so that your daily life may win the respect of outsiders and so that you will not be dependent on anybody. Paul's clear. We should work hard, support our own families, and not depend on others for financial support. That's clearly what he's saying. We should work responsibly. Second Thessalonians 3.10, if someone refuses to work, Paul says, if they're not willing to work, then don't let them eat. 
It's not loving to support those who refuse to work. Okay, so I think that's just good contextually. On the other hand, though, this is the focus of this verse, there are many, many situations, and it's so true today, isn't it, where our economy is just suffering so remarkably, really the greatest economic downturn since the Depression. These are hard days, aren't they, for many people. So there are many situations where financial problems arise through no fault of our own. I mean, just about every one of us. If you lose your job, it's not long before you're in trouble. (laughs) It wouldn't take very long. Most of us don't have savings where we could just live on and on and on. So we live in a fallen world. If sickness strikes or injury or pay cuts or you lose your job, suddenly you're plunged into financial need. It doesn't take long. So this text says, support one another as we're able in such situations. We should gladly give to others since the Lord has given so much to us. That's what it means to be a family, right? You say to another family member, okay, you've got to go get a job if you're not working. We say that to a family member, don't we? But on the other hand, if they just can't find a job or they're sick or whatever, we support them and we help them. And that's a joy, isn't it? It's a joy to help others and to extend care in that sort of way. And then we're to extend hospitality. In New Testament times, not so different from today, maybe somewhat different, but not so different. Believers were poor when they traveled. They needed to stay in other people's homes. So hospitality was really practical and down to earth. It still is today. And part of what it means to love one another is to have someone over to your house. That's hospitality, isn't it? Even for coffee or for dinner. Or or maybe somebody needs a place to stay overnight. That's a way of expressing love. It's, It's a good test for us, isn't it? Is our home an idol? Do we say, you know what? My home's really fixed up. It looks really nice. I don't want any kids in my home. They might break something. It might not look nice. They might spill something. But are things more important than people? Do we love in such a way that we're willing to say, you know, these human beings, these brothers and sisters, they're more important than my things. We must not fall in the trap of thinking, well, hospitality, that's a ministry for others. 1 Peter 4.9 says we're to be hospitable without grumbling or complaining. The hospitality that pleases God is cheerful and full of joy. Well, that brings me back to the beginning, and now we're at the end. God has given us a family, hasn't he? The church of Jesus Christ. And if we're Christians, we're part of the family of God. We're not alone. We're part of the family. Still, the fundamental cure for loneliness is not one another, as important as that is. And that's what this text emphasizes. The fundamental cure for loneliness is knowing God and knowing Jesus Christ. Once we know God, we're never alone. Before Jesus gave up his life, on that very night he died, he knew his enemies would kill him, and he knew his friends would betray him. He knew it. And he said to his dearest friends, you will leave me all alone. You'll all forsake me. You'll leave me all alone. But then he said, Yet I'm not alone, for my Father is with me. Isn't that remarkable? I'm not alone. 
So if you're ever in that situation, you're not alone. The Father was with him, and the Father is with you. Jesus was alone, but he wasn't lonely. The Father was with him, and he's with us. He's with you, and he's with me. He will never leave us. He'll never forsake us. He'll comfort you. He'll strengthen you in that darkest hour. So let's bank on that promise. Because he is faithful. Let's pray. Father, how we rejoice that we belong to one another and that we are brothers and sisters and that you've given us the the great joy of Christian fellowship, the great privilege of gathering together here with one another and meeting with other believers in homes and coffee shops and in other places to be encouraged and strengthened and, and helped. Lord, we, we acknowledge that your plan for the church is a good plan. And we thank you for how it has helped us to stay true to you by your grace. And Lord, we pray that we would show real love to one another, that we would be a family to one another more and more, encouraging and strengthening and challenging and rebuking one another. And Lord, we give thanks that Jesus Christ and God our Father take care of us and that you love us and you promise to be with us no matter what happens, that we are never, ever alone because of your presence with us. We praise you for that truth in Jesus' name. Amen.